Hi, this is Paul Peterson, and you're listening to Vicki Abelson's The Road Taken. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Quick Impressions is a full-service commercial printer with pricing that competes with online wholesalers. The difference is their customer service. From business cards, envelopes, brochures, to mailers, presentation folders, DVD and CD packaging, cartons, signs, to calendars, and I've used them for just about all of those things myself, including the galleys and bookmarks and signature plates for my own book, and custom-designed tissue boxes and notepads and labels for women who write. They've done it all. Um, and I ain't easy to please, as you well know, DJ. And they always blow me away. The quality of their work is stellar, and they're the nicest people ever. That's Quick Impressions. Hold the C. Quick. Q-U-I-K. Ask for Rick, but that does have a C. And then tell them that Vicky sent you, which also has a C. And they will love you up. You can find them at quickimpressions.com for all your printing needs. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken, Celebrity Maps to Success. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. Hey, Wheezy. Hey, Vicki. Hey, so um, I hope you've had a better week than I have. I think uh, most of us have. Yeah, although I got to say that um, from what I've been reading on the Facebook the last week, I have never, ever had so many of my friends have people transitioning as I've watched happen in the last week. Um, an inordinate number of people have passed. I, I just, I, there's, I know there's something astrologically going on, um, but boy, has it played out in my friends' uh, families. Um, have you noticed anything? I have not. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, yeah, um, my uh, my stepfather, Norman Thiedler, um, was, uh, has been ill for months, and we thought it was pneumonia. They kept telling us it was just the pneumonia. He was going to get better. He was going to get better, and he wasn't. He was just losing weight, losing weight, getting weaker, getting weaker, getting going to the hospital. They even took a scan um, uh, about six weeks ago, and they said, oh, he just has gallstones. And the pain went away and he went home, but then he got so weak he had to go back to the hospital. And um, it turns out that um, they took another scan and this time they found stage four pancreatic cancer, which had moved to his liver. And this is just less than two weeks ago. And um, the most fucked up part of it is that a doctor went into his room. My, my mother was there around the clock and as was his family. And... Um, some doctor found the one moment at 7 a.m. that he was alone and decided to tell him this news. And so um, it, the shock of it just um, and the fact that he was alone, he kind of lost his mind. He was very, you know, loose. That one thing he never 
lost were his faculties. And, um, but that kind of snapped him into this alternate reality where he didn't know where he was and it all was really scary. Anyway, um, this was just um, like 12 days ago and um, I kept being told, you know, don't come yet, don't come yet. They gave him three months and I was talking to a friend of mine that's worked in hospice and she said, well, from what it sounds like, it doesn't sound like months to me, it sounds like weeks, but you know, you have, and I couldn't leave for like weeks. So I, you know, my mother was like, sit tight, I'll, you know, and everyone was advising me, you'll know when it's time to go. And so um, last Monday, uh, my daughter said that Norman's hands were purple and I told that to my friend and she said okay now it's time to book your ticket because now it's probably 48 hours and so on a day's notice I, I you know I went the next day um, my son came with me at the last minute and I thought I was going to be giving my mother this great surprise for five minutes of joy and this horror that she would be surprised by seeing her grandson and um, she opened the door and my stepfather had literally passed 10 minutes after we landed and so I didn't get to say goodbye, but um, I was just there um, six weeks ago. So I did spend a lot of time with him then. And I don't feel like they were un uh, unspoken words with us. You know, I was demonstrative with him and, and told him that I loved him and um, tried to talk to him on the phone the, the week he was in the hospital and he was too weak, but he knew I, you know, I was trying. And in fact, Norman did not like people who didn't make an effort in their appearance. And the woman in the bed next to him, um, you know, in the hospital bed, he was saying, you know, she should really put on some makeup. She'd look better. You know, she was like in the <laughs> hospital. But Norman, so I wanted to Skype with him. He was too weak to talk on the phone. and But I didn't have makeup on. So I said to oh. him, all right, tomorrow I'm going to get up early and I'm going to put on makeup so that I can Skype with Norman. And I did, you know, I got up early. I put on makeup and he wasn't up to the Skype that day. So I didn't get to say to say the goodbye and um but it was more important somebody said that maybe he waited until harry and i landed so that he, like he somehow knew that my mother would be taken care of and that he could go but um that's how speedy it was i mean less than it was like 12 days after he was diagnosed he was gone and today um today is is may 17th when we record this um this would have been norman's 92nd birthday and happy birthday norman happy birthday norman he was the most, I, so I, I have some words of wisdom from Norman that I got posthumously. Is that the right word? Um, uh, Norman was claimed to have never had a headache in his entire life. And he was somebody that, he, he really wasn't half, a glass half full. He really was glass full, always. And you'd say to Norman, you know, you know, like he'd be in the hospital, like having, he had heart issues his whole life. He'd be, Norman, how do you feel? Never better. <laughs> you know, he was just one of those guys that just never complained, just always saw the, the up, the good side of everything, in spite of the fact that he was a Republican. But um, <clears throat> anyway, he... Um, his granddaughter Taylor spoke beautifully at the service. They had a, a full um, uh, military funeral, which I I've never witnessed one before. I'm just thinking about it; it's making me cry. They had soldiers there. They had a, one played the bugle. They did the salute. They there was a American flag on the casket. They did this brilliant like. <laughs> this tribute and then they folded the flag like soldiers do and presented it to my mother I mean it was like right out of a Kennedy like oh my god and it was very emotional but um anyway Norman's granddaughter Taylor spoke beautifully and said that Norman had told her a couple of years before he passed that the secret to his um 
his serenity in life was that whenever he had a problem or a worry or a concern, he would take it in his mind and he would put it in a box and he would close the box and put it on a shelf and he would never think of it again. Now, that's intense. And I, I've since discussed this with a, a few like people, psychologists and things, and they say that is a trick that a tool that therapists will give their patients. That's not an unheard of tool. It's kind of well known out there. What's unheard of is that someone can actually accomplish it to really not think of it ever again. And I truly believe that Norman was able to do that because to never have a headache in his life, to be able to, on his, what turned out to be his deathbed, say, how are you? Never better kind of thing. You know, who, who, who's, like, who's like that? To never be complaining. Um, so I've tried it. Um, Norman passed um, a week ago. And so I've tried it um, today, actually. I've tried it a, a few times in the last week. And I have to tell you, it is really powerful. Now, of course, for me, I have to not only put it in the box, I have to then tape the box you do. a lot. Yes. And then I have to close, I have to put in a closet, I have to close the door. And you need like Russian stacking dolls <laughs> of boxes. Yes, I need, so like Taylor was describing how she does it is like, and I don't know why Norman never shared this wisdom with me. I kind of have a beef with Norman that I had to wait two years to get this and why he waited. He had his ways of he getting had, it to you. He did. But I don't know why he didn't share this with us like way back, but maybe he just came to, I don't know, but, but Taylor has these nice white boxes and they open vertically and she puts the stuff in and then she puts it on the shelf. Me, I have those like cardboard, you know, those, you know, brown whatever they are and they have flaps and I tape them and you know I have my own little vision of it but I did try it for a couple things and I have to say that both problems I put in the boxes last week I I was I was freed of the of of the obsession with them almost immediately I definitely I did it at night and I noticed when I woke up in the morning that, that I was okay and I've I've done that I've done it I've repeated the process with both of those things because they were big, but I wasn't suffering them. I just had a little. I just found myself thinking about it. So I thought, let me just put it back. Let me just put it in another box. Seal that sucker up again. But I have to say, quite quite brilliant. I think, and um, I'm just gonna quickly say I I I'm gonna figure out a way to to properly eulogize. Uh, Norman, because he was so deserving, but Triple Purple Heart winner, World War II vet, he was at the Battle of Okinawa. You know that movie, uh, Hacksaw Ridge? That, when at the beginning of that movie, there's a, a regiment that is being pulled out, and it's all bodies. It's just bodies. The 96th, I think they were. That was Norman's regiment, and uh, he, uh, he was really a hero. He also got a gold medal of honor. You know, just, he was really a hero, and, um, a fearless hero and very heroic and um, a, a, a really proud American. And uh, like a last of a dying breed, there just aren't a lot of men like Norman that roam the earth still. Continued to practice law until he was almost 90. Was on the treadmill every single day until like a few months ago. Um, just really incredible. So I, I think that that wisdom of not worrying and of just taking worries and just deciding 
I'm not thinking about you anymore. It's like that Scarlett O'Hara, you know, I'll worry about you tomorrow, except he never worried about it again. Mm -hmm. And I got to think it worked because how else could he have gone through life so serenely? So, so Norman leaves, um, leaves me and anyone who's willing, interested to listen with, with words of wisdom that, um, I plan to carry forward. And I guess that honors him in its fashion right there. Absolutely. Um, I heard some more wisdom this week, which has really, uh, been impactful for me that I want to share. Um, because the road taken this, this is about the tools for success and what those tools are for different people. And so as I is I claw my way, no, it's, it's, as I trudge my way to my own success, um, the tools that I gather, I guess, are, are worth sharing for whatever they're worth to anybody out there. But another one I got was from my new um, favorite person, Jeremy Stevens, who's my life coach, again, with the quotes that make me gag, but and the rolling of the eyes at the words. But... Um, what I uncovered with Jeremy this past week was he asked me what my highest dream would be in six months from now to ask me to, to tell him what that would be. Okay. So my first words to him were, well, in a perfect world. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why does the world have to be perfect? And what does that have to do with your highest dream? And I said, well, because everything has to be right. Why does everything have to be right? I'm asking you what your dream, your fantasy, your highest fantasy is. And it was really hard for me to wrap my head around that. And I, I, so I started again. It, it took me like three starts to stop saying in a perfect world. So like it finally. So then I started to tell him what what I envisioned. And he said, and then I said, but, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why is there a but on your highest dream, on your fantasy? I said, because it's not realistic. Wait, wait a minute. Since when, he said, does a fantasy, does a highest dream have to be realistic? And I realized that I've spent my whole life getting in my own way because I've been told all of my life that my dreams weren't going to happen by people that were that are very close to me, who have told me all my life that my dreams were unrealistic, that I shouldn't follow this dream, that I should drive for Uber and things like that. And um, I've been told that it won't happen because of this reason and because of this reason. And, you know, nobody makes it in showbiz. You know, all of these good reasons why my dreams were not going to happen. And so now I don't even need those outside voices to tell me they're not going to happen because I tell myself they're not going to happen. So I'm telling my highest fantasy. And while I'm doing it, I'm saying but and giving all the reason. But Jeremy stopped me and wouldn't let me tell him why not. And he gave me a new way of looking at my own goals and dreams and realizing that how could I possibly manifest things if I don't believe it myself, if I'm putting limitations on them myself? I'm telling the universe this can't happen because. So reconditioning all these years of doing things a certain way that was not serving me and to be rethinking it and trying to approach it in a different way. I haven't really had the time to sit down and really fantasize. It's been a crazy week, obviously, with past uh, someone so beloved passing so close and funeral and Shiva and all of that and family and um, trying to be there for my mom and my kids and, you know, just all that was going on. But I intend to spend some time every day living in that fantasy with no buts. 
Right. Just, you don't want to apologize to the universe about even having the dream. Yeah. Which I've been doing. Don't. And I also realize that I apologize for everything. Every compliment that's ever been paid to me, I've given people a reason why it's wrong. Right? I have to say, I have to say, I think that's possibly a specifically female trait. I think there's something to be said for that. Um, although I'm in the rooms quote unquote again, but I'm in recovery and mm -hmm. I've discovered that in recovery, there are many men that suffer exactly the way we do because they've had role models. They've had people close to them that have been giving them this misinformation. And um, so I don't think it's gender specific. I think we, I think we as women talk about it more. And I think ah. we're more, I think we're more open and more willing to expose to each other um and to the world these week i think men are taught to be stoic keep it to themselves keep it down shut up keep it in and um and we are encouraged to be more emotional or are allowed to be more emotional um i don't really think it is gender specific actually um but the more but now that it's out there and i get it and i'm talking about it i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna ask i'm I, in fact i'm gonna ask paul about let's we'll talk to our guest tonight um which brings me to our guest tonight and yes. I know you hate that which brings me to our no, guest no, no. tonight which brings me is really nice and subtle I don't like and speaking of ah I think that is um hack okay well and which brings me is kind of hack. I, I hate hack things no, I think but, it's kind of gentle kind of nice but it's really the truth I mean these these little openings that we do these opening segments really are a segue for some reason, you know, I didn't plan this opening to be about our, our guest tonight, but it does move. It, 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 it always does. Uh, this, uh, the current show that's on this week is Chris Lemon. And when uh, at, we were doing the opening, it was all about my stepfather because he, he was ill. I had just learned that. And then, of course, we got into this whole thing about fathers and Chris's whole life is about his father about Jack Lemon so it just seems that there's sort of an organic natural segue that happens between what's going on in my life your life our lives and what this particular guest each week means to to me to us to the world and, and to the word father and to the word father um, and f with Paul tonight our guest is Paul Peterson and Paul um, well, there's a lot of father stuff that I'm going to talk about with about with Paul. But what's what's compelling with what we were just discussing in Paul is Paul Peterson. For those of you who don't know, because you're young, and I, I'm making a face right now, but it's only because I'm jealous, and I'm really not. I wouldn't trade one one of my years. I I value them, but back in the day when Louise and I were girls, there was a show called The Donna Reed Show, and Paul Peterson played um what was his last name jeff stone and jeff stone was america's heartthrob i mean when i think of all the shows that were on then leave it to beaver and all those shows and i i had a crush on wally too but but there was nobody there was nobody like jeff stone he dreamy he was dream ricky nelson the uh, ozzy and harriet ricky nelson was it he was in the class with ricky nelson i think uh, right yeah no absolutely and he was such a good he is such a good 
actor. He's a wonderful actor, and he's also a wonderful man. He's 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 the most articulate man on Facebook. Okay, were you there when he did Women Who Write? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he, he this man, I he didn't know what to what you know. He's he's written a shit ton of books. I shouldn't I shouldn't curse with Paul because I want to be respectful because he is a little old school, and I kind of love that he about him. He is delightfully like he is the embodiment of a fifties television show. He is. <laughs> He is. He's 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 very old school in a very charming way. Yeah. Um, but he's written a ton of books, which I didn't even know till he got to Women Who Write. But I had no idea what he was going to talk about. I don't know if he knew what he was going to. But he walked in. He is he, so good. He got to the podium. Ugh. He did not. T- he didn't look at a note. Oh man. And he did not take a breath for an hour. He spoke articulately, brilliantly emotionally moving I mean it was like one of the most powerful salons we've ever had I oh, think oh he could have run for office and he, he would have had my vote absolutely could run for, except, he, except I believe he's a Republican well but, that's you know he's just really really insightful and very wise and wise and also he's got a heart that is as big as the universe Paul decided years and years ago that what happens to child actors um, it all happened. It, it started. Wait, I'm 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 skipping things. So I I, I wanna, think it started I wanna, with Rusty Hammer. It, it started with Rusty Hammer after uh, Make Room for Daddy, and um, his life. Uh, Hammer or Hammer? Ha- ha- Hamer, Hamer, Hamer. Yeah. And and Rusty. Um, I believe he killed him. Did he kill himself? I believe so. Yeah. And so, um, Paul. Uh, yeah, it was a su- it was a suicide. Uh, Paul founded a support group called A Minor Consideration to improve working conditions for child actors and to assist in the transition between working as a child actor and adult life, whether in acting or in other professions. Um, And most recently, he and his people reached out to Erin Moran who um, she did not commit suicide um, from what I understand and from what Paul has very articulately stated on Facebook and which we'll, we'll talk about if it's not too hard for him um, was Aaron had um, a stage four cancer, throat cancer and um, hers, it progressed very quickly, not quite as quickly as my stepfather's, but it like just within a few months um, from diagnosis, she, um, she passed and um but but it's an amazing organization, and they've come to the rescue of many many child actors who've needed advocates, and you know so many of these people. I'm I've been friends with Mason Reese, who was the Oscar Mayer kid. I've been friends with Mason for like thirty five years, and Mason's had a really smooth, pretty good transition. He's, Brilliant guy. Yeah, and he's really he's really handled it all really well. But that's not always been the case. He has he has wonderful parents. I don't think all children in show business, probably the majority of children in show business, do not have the best parents. I think that's probably true because they want their kids to live out the dreams they didn't get to live. In many cases. In many cases. And you have experience with that with your teens on Journals Out Loud. Louise is the host of a fantastic podcast for teens and tweens called Journals Out Loud, which she records in this very studio on Tuesday nights. And And also with the documentary I made about the Cows Hills, you know, the children's... Oh my gosh. The childhood needs to come first not the career and boy the Cal Sills are a perfect example of how 
a parent's dysfunction can destroy a family, almost destroy. I mean, I have to say, Bob is one of the coolest, most. Bob is one of my favorite. Bob Castle is one of my favorite people on the planet. And I just yesterday got another notification. Bob did Women Who Write at least three, four years ago. I get notifications almost daily about that video of him at Women Who Write. And the one yesterday was, that is the best course, that is the best uh, audience participation I have <laughs> ever seen. Uh. Because we started singing along with Bob to the Rain in the Park and other things. And I knew, I knew, I knew. And Bob wasn't expecting it. And <laughs> it's a beautiful moment because he just kind of stops and he's <laughs> shocked. And then he picks up the song and everybody's singing along with him. And there are, there are Grammy winners in our audience and, and all kinds of women who sing, you know, and make lots of records and things. And so they really know how to sing. It sounded great. But anyway, getting back to Paul. So Paul started his career as a Mouseketeer, which I, I, I have, you know, once I heard that, I have this vague memory and I can kind of picture him with the, with the ears on, but, but I would not have known that otherwise. He appeared in the movie Houseboat with Sophia Loren and Cary Grant. he's the best child actor in the history of child actor performances, in that movie with yeah. his little crush on Sophia Loren, yeah. it is just delicious. <laughs> Oy, we're going to have to talk to him about Sophia and Carrie. Oh, my God. Um, but it was really Jeff Stone, which he played for eight years on the Donna Reed show, that really made him a star. And uh, that was uh, from 1958 to 1966. So I, I was born in 55. Louise, you're a little younger than me. But we're watching... We're watching first. I'm watching first run because I'm, 66. I am. I think I, I remember it more in reruns. Yeah, yeah. Black and white was the reruns. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I remember watching it for years after in reruns. But I, I did see. The, I, I don't know. I don't remember what night it was on. It might have been Friday night. I don't remember. But I do remember being a little girl and and watching it with with my brother and and uh, I. I yeah, I, I do remember that. And um, his dad, one of the dreamiest TV dads. Oh my God, of Carl all time. Betts. Oh, yes. I wanted him, you know, I wanted him to be, I love my dad. I loved my dad. But Carl Betts was pretty, you know, yeah, pretty he, cool. Him and, him and Ward Cleaver. Very cool uh, dads. Very, yes, smooth. very cool dads. So Paul was actually honored as the young, uh, by the Young Artist Foundation with its former child star Lifetime Achievement Award because of the impact that Jeff Stone had on. On, on society. Um, after um, the Donna Reed show, or during, I guess, some of it, he recorded a series of pop hits, and he had a hit with She Can't Find Her Keys, Amy, Lollipops and Roses, and I have to tell you the story of this quickly. Um, the night before Paul was coming to Women Who Write, I was doing my making, writing a bio on him, and I was looking up his stuff, and I saw the lollipops and roses and it's giving me goosebumps to this minute because the Bacharach song uh uh I know I don't believe that was a Burt Bacharach song, Lollipops and Roses. I'll have to look up. I'll have to ask Paul who wrote that song. But I remember Jack Jones had a hit with it. Yeah, that's a Bacharach song. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, but Paul had a big teen hit with it and um, I had forgotten that. And Lollipops and Roses is one of the very first songs, maybe the first song my father ever sang to me and sang to me throughout my childhood. Aww. And on the night that I was doing the research, I have every hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now. I was in bed and I had my computer on my lap and I was playing on YouTube 
Paul's version of Lollipops and Roses, and I started to cry. And all of a sudden, I hear the toothbrush. It was my electric razor. Wow. And I went into my bathroom, and this is the first time it happened. I went into my bathroom, and my electric razor had knocked off the shelf, had knocked itself off the shelf, and was on on the floor of the bathtub. I turned it off. I put it back on the shelf on the windowsill. I came back. I turned back on lollipops and roses and I hear bzzz. This went on for at least an hour. Every time I turned off the razor and put it back on the shelf, it would do it again. And that began my father communicating with me, I believe, through my razor, which went on for uh, at least a week after that. And it happened. So so I was try- I was telling the women, Paul and the women uh, of women who write about it, and somebody screamed out. He also had a hit with a song called My Dad, which totally freaked me out because I didn't even know that. And I, so I was hoping that the razor would act up at Women Who Write, and I had it there to show everybody, and it didn't start during the salon that night. But when everybody left at three o'clock in the afternoon, I went upstairs and my electric toothbrush was on and had been on for I don't know how long. So um, Paul was definitely a conduit to my father communicating with me, which is extraordinary. The powers that man has. Um, Anyway, so yes, so Paul also had a hit with my dad. Wait, can I just rewind? Yeah. If he has a song called She Can't Find Her Keys, I need to hear that. Okay, we're going to have to play it. I'm going to have John put that please, in the show. John, please, John. I'm going to have John put that in the show. So, And I need to hear it too. I hope there's a solution. Actually, there is a solution, Louise. I have the solution. I, I had to finally get to the point where I put my keys in the exact same place. Exactly. You have to have always. a system. I have a system. You have to put it into place. And they only go in that Only. Pl- that's it. There's no deviation because if I deviate, they're gone. So I have a little tray on my table when I get in, and they go in that Boom. every time. And my headphones go in there too, Boom. and it's it's the it's the law. Please um, speak to my husband. <laughs> so, so anyway, so Paul had these hits, and uh, actually he had a number six hit on the on the top 100, and he was recording for Motown through the 60s, and he re- also released Chained and a little bit for Sandy also big hits. Um, so then in the 70s, he decides to reinvent himself and he goes back to school, goes back to college, and he decides to be a writer. And so he creates like a Matt Helm type hero, Eric Saverman, Eric Saveman, also known as The Smuggler. And in one year, Pocket Books published eight smuggler novels. It took me 13 years to write one book. He's published <laughs> He's eight. just whipping them out. One year. <laughs> And uh, and then in 1977, he uh, his autobiography Walt, Mickey, and Me: Confessions of the First Ex Musketeer was published. Wow! Did he get fired? So well, well, I mean, he wrote this a gazillion. Walt was already gone, and yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. So um, I want the dish. Yeah. So well, 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 well we're going to get the dish tonight. Okay. That's okay. for sure. Good, good, so, good. Well, I don't know if Paul, I don't know if Paul dishes. Paul is Paul is above dish. Oh, I want some Disney dish. Well, we'll, we'll see if Come we can on. get. We'll, we'll try to get some Disney dish. Okay. He didn't give us any dish, Disney dish that not, that day. Well, let's dig for it. So we'll dig. We'll dig. Yeah. So he is also a member of the Donna Reed Foundation and works for the Donna Reed Festival and serves on the board of directors for SAG and AFTRA. This man is an activist. This yeah. man puts his money where his mouth is. He stands up. He suits up. He shows up. 
he's just incredible. I mean, if you if you don't follow him on Facebook, please do. I mean, he's his posts are amazing. They're so from the heart. He's oh my gosh, he's so such emotional a- and forthcoming and and real and honest and wonderful and just. Um, I'm I'm just honored and he's been lovely with me you know he he when I first went to book him he like immediately said yes and and was responsive with me and then when I I tried to book him for this for the, for this podcast um a few a, a few weeks ago maybe a month ago and he said he was mourning Aaron Moran and he just wasn't up to it this is an emotional wonderful fantastic human being i think he takes personal responsibility for the the child star family i think you're right and he suffers a loss very very personally and speak about my dad i think he has become like a father to all of these child yes. actors yes that's and why I he said has the taken word that role and oh, you know what Paul. here he is right now so it is my thrill my honor to welcome paul to the show hi paul welcome to the show Hi, Vicky. Good to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, this is a, a dream come true for me. And we were talking about Louis. Um, okay, uh, Paul. This is uh, Louise Polanco. We call her Wheezy. Hi, Paul. Wheezy. Hi, Wheezy. Hi. So you? you actually met Wheezy. She was over in the corner at Women Who Write, taking uh, pictures and videos of you while you were so brilliantly speaking with us that day. Well, thank you. I, I, it was uh, it was a very nice time. Truly, it was. I kind of su- I was surprised. You never know how those things are going to go. Oh, I I bet that's true. And we don't know what it's going to be like when our guests come. But I have to say, I, I, Louise and I were just talking about it. You were such a surprise. You were a shockingly fantastic surprise because I had no idea what you were going to talk about. I had no idea if you were just going to talk or if I was going to ask you questions. I didn't know where we were going. I didn't even know when, until I started doing your bio that you had written all those books. And um, and you ended up getting up there and you spoke brilliantly without pause, articulately for the entire time. It was just a brilliant, brilliant uh, presentation. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Every now and then I, I kind of surprise myself. <laughs> I once gave a a lecture at uh, Rutgers University to the combined um, theatrical departments. And all of a sudden, I felt this tap on my shoulder, and uh, the professor who had invited me was tapping. He said, Paul, we have to give up the room. You've been talking for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's hysterical. But if I would have been, if, if it would have been Wheezy and I in the audience, we probably would have sat there for another after that. Um, wow, it, I, well. I, I also want to tell you that Louise um, uh, is very much in 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 sync with you. Uh, she did the documentary on the Cowsills, um, oh, the family yes, band, yes. and so she really understands your plight about child actors and what happens to children who are sort of uh, not not cared for properly, who are successful early in life. And uh, we're going to. Well, as I think I told you all, it, it ends up the shorthand for all of this is damaged goods. Mm-hmm. Even when things go well mm-hmm. and you plan accordingly for your future life, you are still damaged goods. 
Oh, we are going to talk at length about that. But we're going to go back, though, first, and we're going to talk about little Paul Peterson because we want to know about you. Be, be, we want to know about little Paul. There wasn't a lot before because you got famous so young, but but there but there was a beginning to your life, and I'm and I'm really curious about it. So where 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 did you grow up, Paul? Well, we uh, it was kind of a split uh, upbringing. I was born in Glendale, California, oh. right uh, one month after World War II came to an end. Uh-huh. And because all of my family worked uh, at Lockheed, uh, once the wartime industry shut down, in order to eat, we had to move back to Iowa, which is my ancestral home. Uh-huh. And we lived on my aunt uh, and uncle's farm in western, uh, northwestern Iowa, Cherokee County. And then Lockheed called my father back to work, and uh, we returned to Southern California in time for me to go to first grade. Ah. And from there, uh, we were just a hop, skip, and a jump from Hollywood living, uh, living in Burbank. And I began, like my older sister, to take endless lessons, singing and dancing and piano and no it was just brutal okay wait before and before before you, you yes? before you go on tell, tell, was that motivated because your your parents your mom wanted you to do it because it doesn't sound like you were loving it well I, I, I tell you the truth my mom was bigger than me <laughs> uh, I loved the singing I, I truly did uh-huh. uh, we sang in church my sister had a wonderful voice uh, we would act, people would applaud. I mean, we oh. were that good. Yes, I believe you. And the you. dancing and all the rest just kind of went with it because, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day, the discipline in the entertainment business is you had to be good at everything. Right. Sing, dance, act, uh, you know, sword play. And those were the standards my mom thought were important. And I was fortunate enough to have some really good teachers. Um, I showed a lot of leg when it came to dancing, and I was quickly sent over to a, a brilliant uh, black dancer by the name of Willie Covan. And Sally Sargent, my uh, dance and singing teacher, was known in the business. And when I started making appearances, you know, the kind of amateur appearances uh, at the VA Wadsworth Theater and at churches around town and then finally at the Hollywood Bowl, mm-hmm. people noticed and that inevitably, as I told you, led to the open audition at Disney to become a Mouseketeer. Okay, wait. Before you get to the Mouseketeer, so what I what I want to get the essence of before we move forward to understand, mm-hmm. it, it, when you were very little, bef- while you were still in Iowa, did you have any? Mm-hmm. What did you? What did you want to be when you grew up? What was the first thing you remember wanting to be when you grew up? I wanted to be good. Mm. Whatever there was to do, I wanted to be good at it, whether it was fishing or slopping hogs or getting the eggs out of the hen house. Uh, I wanted to learn how to fling a hay bale like my big cousin Eddie. (laughs) I wanted to be good. I wanted to be able to throw and catch a baseball. I wanted to be smart in school. I wanted to understand the big words when I heard them. Wow. I wanted to excel. I wanted to excel. And what do you think, looking back on it, do you have any clue what motivated that that desire to be the best, to to be your best? Well, I, I'm not really sure. I, I know I'm I'm kind of short-tempered with people who don't live up to their potential. Mm. And I also, uh, I just, I have always been able to do several good things. In fact, I can remember, you know, my mom saying, you know, it's like you're a jack-of-all-trades and an ace in none. 
And that infuriated me because <laughs> everything I, I pried my hand at, mm-hmm. I got really good quickly. Right. So it's like, and, and it didn't matter what that was, whether it was playing baseball or, as I proved in seventh grade, playing the trombone. Wow. Wow. So, so, was, so it sounds like your mother was a bit of a taskmaster, and she was difficult. Oh, yes. <laughs> so she was difficult to please. Yes? No, absolutely true, yes. In fact, the, uh, one of the seminal moments of my life came the third year of the Donna Reed show. I was still taking a bunch of lessons everywhere. Mm. And finally, I just had enough. And we were sitting in the living room of the home I had already purchased for, for my mother. Mm. And I finally stood up to her and said, Mom, I've got the damn job. Wow. Wow. So do you think it's possible that her, that, that perhaps your quest to be perfect, to be your perfect self, your best self, was because you wanted to please her? Oh, I think that, uh, yes, indeed yeah. I do. I, yeah. You know, resolving that issue was a major component in, in getting healthy. But, I, you know, the interesting thing about this, Vicki, is I had a lot of friends, uh-huh. athletic friends, mm-hmm. brainy friends, singing friends, dancing friends. I, I always wanted, I, I really like being around people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, want to, I want to like them, and I want them to like me. Mm-hmm. Well, you've succeeded there a gazillion fold. I mean, you are so beloved that it's, I, I have never heard anybody say a negative word about you ever in my life. I can't remember reading a negative word about you ever. And to get through all of those years of show business and, and have that be true says so much about you, Paul. Uh, oh, but Vicki, I, I wouldn't wish anyone to have my twenties. I mean, that's just not so. When, uh, I remember while I was on the board at SAG and AFTRA, mm-hmm. on both boards before the merger, people would say things to me, and I I would look at them and say, you've never seen me drunk. <laughs> and they would look and say, you drink? And I said, you're talking to an alcoholic. You you guys just don't get it. <laughs> wow. There are dark places, and I had bad associations, a bad marriage, mm-hmm. very public divorce in my early 20s, and I made some terrible choices. But thank God I put all that behind me. Okay, well, we, okay, so we want to work our way through this. Okay, so so now, so, ha- so, so, so Weezy and I were discussing if we were going to be able to get you to, to like, gossip about Walt Disney at all. Tell us some, some, some juice. And I said, I don't think Paul does that, but we're going we're gonna to see if we, can no. we, if we can squeeze it out I of you. I don't have any, I don't have any uh, no. negative things no, to say we, about No, we it. don't Look, need negative. It, we, we don't. Was, <laughs> no, I, I, here's, here's the deal. Okay. Whatever problems he and I may have had when I was nine were fully resolved by the time I was 21. Wow. He acknowledged that he had fired me when I was nine years old. Oh. He, he remembered that. All right, wait. Before but you talk about also... being fired, I want we you have to talk about being hired. So, so wait. So, so you're in yeah. Iowa. You come back to you come back to California. You're in first grade. Right. You okay? When does your mom decide you are going to be a star? Well, she didn't. This is the crazy part. My dance teacher, Sally Sargent, whom I'd mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, heard about an open audition over at Disney Studios. And we only lived about three miles from the studio. We knew where it was, and we drove over on a Saturday morning. 
and I had my music with me in a routine, which I had perfected uh, <laughs> around L.A. And when they called me up, uh, instead of uh, the, the usual um, uh, experience of having a voice in the dark theater after four bars say, thank you very much, mm-hmm. next, mm-hmm. I got to do my whole routine. Wow. And after it was done, people clapped, oh. including my competition. Oh, so, okay, but your mom, Look, I, I, your mom knew you. She was grooming you because you were in all these classes. So she was grooming you for something. She wanted me to be prepared. She knew already I was good. I mean, it's hard to sit in a church, uh, first congregational church in North Hollywood, and and bring people to their feet when you oh, sing oh and God. and ignore that. Now, yeah. What is she going to do? Ignore it? The people at the Hollywood Bowl clapped and applauded. Well. Wow. So, so she was a proud mom who decided that she, oh, sure. that her child had talent and she was going to foster that talent and help you be your best. Is that That's, that was her idea? But the thing was, it's like being run over by the super chief. Mm-hmm. Once it actually happened, and I started to work, mm-hmm. mom, dad, granny, grandpa, they were out of their league. Mm-hmm. This is a tough town. Yeah, yeah. So how so? Explain what you mean. What I mean is the demands aren't just the work. You know, memorizing lines and getting to work on time, that stuff's easy. Mm-hmm. It's the estrangement of your peers that's hard to cope with. Mm. It's the singular focus uh, of uh, career uh, considerations when you're 10, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. It's not being able to really express your joy when you get a groovy part like playing Cary Grant's son. Oh, we want to talk about going to share that with. Oh, my God. So you, okay, so you weren't able to maintain peer relationships at that age because you were always working. Is that it? Uh, that is correct. Well, more than that, I lost the relationships, which were good ones, that I had in grade school because I was away right. and off on another tangent, if you will. Right. And it really wasn't until I got to hang out with Similarly situated friends like Tony Dow and, mm-hmm. and Stan Livingston and mm-hmm. Johnny Crawford and Bobby Crawford that I learned that there were other people sharing my condition. Mm-hmm. And with those people, I could share. Right, right. Um, okay, we're going to get to those guys. So for now, you have this audition for Disney. They stand. You, right. you get applause. You get the job. And then what happens? Right. Well, uh, for seven weeks, everything seemed to be go where go uh, very well. Uh, mm-hmm. we, I learned my routines, I did my part, but I also climbed ladders and got lost on the lot <laughs> and played baseball with my friends and occasionally would get in a fight mm-hmm. because I couldn't understand why the girls spent so much time looking in mirrors and the boys were afraid to play baseball. <laughs> well, uh, after seven weeks... Um, I think I had disappeared one one uh, afternoon, and the casting guy, Lee Travers, big fat guy, uh, kept calling me Mouse. Mm. And I hate nicknames because my real, real name is William P. Peterson. So it's Willie P. P. No, he won't. Willie P. P. No, oh. he won't. Anyway, so this guy called me Mouse on a Friday afternoon, and I punched him in the stomach and said, don't call me that, fatso. Oh, God. And standing behind me, Travers, was uh, Walt Disney, <gasps> and I was fired. Oh, God. Oh, my God. So now, <laughs> what happened at home when you got fired? 
Oh, there, well, yeah. I wasn't beaten, but I was so ashamed because mm. in a blue-collar family, you just don't do that. Right. You don't misbehave on the job. Jobs are life. Mm-hmm. So the only solution that you have to understand to losing one job is to get another. Ah. And by the time I was fired, I had an agent and was already going out on interviews well before the Mickey Mouse Club aired in late September. Wow. And before you know it, I started booking jobs. Okay. Good little jobs that got bigger and bigger and bigger until I didn't miss the Mouseketeers at all. Okay, so, yeah, I guess playing opposite um, Sophia Loren and Cary Grant would uh, alleviate any issues missing Annette. So, so, t- so, tell, so tell us, <laughs> although, although Annette was pretty wonderful, I have to say I, I kind of loved Annette. So, so tell, us, um, tell us about working with Sophia and Cary Grant. Oh, my goodness. Well, it was one of the great experiences of my life. First of all, Cary Grant was a huge star in Mm -hmm. in our family. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Mom was absolutely gaga over Mm -hmm. him. And when I landed that job, um, he personally selected the three children, me and Charlie Herbert, Mimi Gibson. Wow. And um, Mom turned over heaven and earth to make sure she could come with me to Washington, (laughs) (laughs) D.C., which was one of the great seven months of my life. Of course, I fell in love with Sophia Loren, but what I loved most of all was doing good work with an excellent actor willing to share named Cary Grant, who I became friends with even though I was 12. I was only 12 when I did that. But I knew where I was, and I wanted to please, and and I was in love with Sophia Loren, and I was in our nation's capital Mm. in an era when it was safe to walk the streets. Mm. Uh, Weezy was saying before before you joined us, you know, pointing out, reminding me how brilliant your acting was, that, that you weren't just a child star, you were a gifted actor. And uh, your crush uh, of her in that film is, go ahead, Wheezy. It's it's of course the scene where you teach her the song or what the lyrics mean, right? And uh, it's just precious, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it's a, what is a wonderful moment. You're here. The moment's near. I'm almost in your arms. <laughs> of course. Of course, it was a great moment. I knew it was a great moment. It was. Uh, it's fun to be a good actor. Yeah. Because yeah. look, I got more than my share of jobs because I took it seriously. Mm-hmm. When I walked into an audition, and you know, you always go in alone. I wanted to knock their socks off. Mm. I wanted them to stand up and say, "You've got the job. Send everybody else home." <laughs> That's how good I wanted to be. And you became that. So when you got fired from from uh, the Mouseketeers for for kind of screwing around, was that the end of your screwing around days? Pretty much. Yep. Mm. I took it pretty seriously. I wasn't going to have that feeling again in my mm. heart, mm. and and didn't for really quite some time. But it, it, what, what, look how fortunate I was to be able to work. Well, hell, I did a Playhouse 90 with Michael Rennie and, and uh, James Mason. Mm. And I didn't feel like a little kid in their presence. Mm-hmm. I felt like a competent actor wow. who, who had the chops to work with them. Wow. How old were and you then? funny, um, about 11. <laughs> and I, <laughs> look, I... <laughs> I, I seem to understand what the drift was. Mm-hmm. And even Michael Rennie and James Mason at the time un- knew that I knew what I was doing. And right. this is a live broadcast, wow. mind you. Wow. So we, we weren't playing fooling around. 
Wow. I love James Mason. Oh, my gosh. And to hold to to be able to hold your own with him at 11 years old is astounding. Um, and well, that's when you see, that's when you know, Vicki, yeah. you really you feel it in your gut. It, mm-hmm. It's not intimidating. Uh, and, and when in professional crews and in professional settings, the people who know the difference recognize it. I don't care if you're five years old uh, or 80 years old and in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. This, this is fascinating, Paul, because I don't think we've ever had a guest that's been so clear from the start of their life what they wanted and, and to be excellent. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that before. Was there anything that you struggled to be excellent at? Was there anything that challenged you that you couldn't conquer in your life? Oh, sure. Math. I oh. hate math. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I struggled. I struggled up through the eighth grade and finally said, that's it. I'm done with this. Mm. Give me words every time. <laughs> and, and I could never play basketball. Mm. And that infuriated me. Of course, I was very small for my age. And, and that, that I knew I was doomed. <laughs> but other sports, you know, bowling or golf, and I loved those things. Just didn't never had time for them. So if something, so if it, so, I'm getting it now. So if something wasn't in your wheelhouse, it wasn't something you could perfect, excel for you. Then you just knew to drop. You just dropped it and moved on. Is that true? That is exactly right. It's like what did uh, I'm trying to think of his name? Played my dad in a. Oh heck, I, the story is better with his name. But nonetheless, he said you got it. When you find out you're not good at something. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. I know you don't mean Carl Betts because I'm I'm sure. No, 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 no. Yeah. This is um, his name Bob would never Cummings. Say. I knew it would uh, come to me. Oh, I love Bob Cummings. <laughs> yeah, me too. What did you work with Bob on? He played Gidget's father when oh. I did that uh, Gidget Grows Up movie. Wow. Oh my god. All right, so so tell us how you got... Hey, you're talking to another moondoggy here. <laughs> moondoggy. Wow, I, God, you're killing me. I got to go back and watch that one. Yeah. I, I haven't seen the Gidget movies in a long time, but boy, I lived for those back in the day. Um, okay, so so how did you get the Donna Reed show? How did that happen? Well, after uh, Houseboat was finished and, and the movie was set to come out, the following spring, uh, Shelley Fabre and I were asked uh, to audition for a family show. Mm-hmm. And what's so funny about this is that the year before, just after I came home from Washington, Shelly and I had played Brothers and Sisters on a series that never got picked up uh, for Sherry Lewis. So we had our brother and sister act down. Mm. And when we tested for the Donna Reed show, we were excellent. Donna Reed checked with uh, Cary Grant, who mm-hmm. said, Paul's a handful, but you'll love working with him. <laughs> and they hired me. <laughs> wow. Okay, so now I'm, well, I'm figuring your life kind of changed at that moment. Oh, uh, utterly. Mm-hmm. This is the story I shared with you uh, that uh, Tony Dow uh, related to me. Mm-hmm. When he and his parents decided that he would accept the offer to play Wally on Leave it to Beaver, mm-hmm. he said the following, poof, there went my life. Wow. Wow. How, how, how old were you when you started Donna Reed? I was 12. We started on July 14, 1958. And how old was Tony when he started on um, Leave it to Beaver? Almost, he was almost 15. Okay. And, and for him, 
Um, I seem to recall he was in other things before that, but that was when his career took off. Yeah, well, I mean, very few things. He's yeah. the, what he was was an excellent uh, collegiate diver, oh. swimmer. Wow. What an athlete. Uh-huh. Um, smart guy, always focused, uh, and and has been my life friend for, holy cow, um, darn near 60 years. Wow. Wow, wow. All right, so let's get back to Paul. So so you're on the Donna Reed show and this show takes off like get, like crazy right away and now you're doing that and how soon are you starting to sing and record uh singles? Well, it took about 3 years, you know. Mm-hmm. I was 12 when we started, but by the time I was 15, the show was in the top 10. Mm-hmm. We owned our time slot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had great lead-ins with Ozzy and Harriet, mm-hmm. and my three sons came after us. Mm-hmm. We were in solid, and Ricky Nelson was showing that uh, bubblegum stars on TV, if they can sing a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. can have successful records. Mm-hmm. So all of that started about age 15. Mm-hmm. So I, I shared with you at Women Who Write, and I just uh, was telling the story before you joined us about how um, the night before you came to Women Who Write, I was listening to your version of Lollipops and Roses, which is a song that my father sang to me. And what I, what the part that I shared with you that day was that my razor had started to go off, and and I kept turning oh, it yes. off, and it kept happening. And then after you left that day, I was hoping my razor was going to go off during the salon, and it didn't. But what happened was oh. when everybody left, I went upstairs to my bathroom, and my to- my electric toothbrush was on and had been on all by itself that whole time <laughs> so i recorded it and what happened paul as a result of of your voice singing that song and that prompt my father continued to communicate with me for weeks after that um uh, for that's weeks wonderful. and and somebody said when i was telling the story at women who write somebody screamed out he also had a hit with my dad and and what louise and i were were, were talking about a few minutes ago was how you've sort of become a dad to all these child actors like you've you've embodied that role for so many people in your life um i, I think that's true and and it's important to point out that in my in the musical aspect of my life, the singular event that I'm most proud of and I am touched to this day by is my dad. Mm. Because I looked around one day when my father had died, my TV father had died, mm. my stepfather had died, and my favorite father-in-law had died and said to myself, I'm the dad. And that was... Um, it was an illuminating moment. People share with me to this day. They're my dad stories. I collect them. I publish them. It, it means the world to me. Okay, so now you're making me cry because what I also <laughs> was sharing is that my stepfather passed away a week ago today. And, um, oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. And today oh. would have been his 92nd birthday. And um, so this connection with you, me, and dads, very profound, continues on. (laughs) Um, It's never really going to go away. You know, next next month will be Father's Day. And and mm -hmm. while I cherish Mother's Day, for me at least, Mm -hmm. 
Father's Day brings uh, lots of lots of art to the surface. Mm. Did did you ever resolve with your mother um, or with yourself about your mother? Did that? How did that? How did that relationship? As your success continued and grew and went to out the roof, how did how did your relationship with your family change? Well, I, it, it look. My dad said a very profound thing. He said, Paul, I loved it when I could introduce you as my son, <laughs> but I hated it when I was introduced as your father. Oh, wow. It, up, it upsets the normal order of things. Mm. Uh, my mom, my re- relationship with my mother was a big part of my drinking mm. and a huge part of my sobriety. Mm. And one day, in my sober days, we were on Montel Williams' show. Mm-hmm. And Montel, whom I've known pretty well, uh, was kind of grilling my mother about what uh, what I went through. Mm-hmm. And she honestly stopped both Montel and me cold when she looked at him and said, he could do everything well, Montel. What was I supposed to do with him? Oh, my. What? Wow. She just didn't get it. Wow. And have you forgiven her for that? Oh, absolutely, of course. How, what in fact, you, before she died, she was coming from the from the rehab facility she was in after a series of illnesses to live with me. I mean, that's how w- w- much we had resolved our issues. Wow. Well, um, d- did you have like a turning point with her? Uh, oh, that was it. Montel Williams, I'm telling you, that was because it wasn't just to me she was speaking. She was explaining to the country mm. that, look, I know it was tough, but, what you know, things are tough. Wow. That's the way life is. Wow. You make your choices, you do your best, and if there are downstream consequences, you better learn to handle them. Mm-hmm. I, think she, I think she may have felt that letting you rise to your, your highest level was being a good parent. And if that, but... But, well, but show business is the only thing I that... I think she's right. What could I change? What Seriously, looking back, what on earth would I change when I very much like the man I am? Mm-hmm. And I, I am committed to the work I think is important. Mm-hmm. And, and people seem to understand that I, I, a long time ago, I, I, I remember a guy tried to bribe me once to, to not make a noise about the kids he was abusing. Mm. And I looked at this very, very wealthy producer and said, look, don't try to bribe me. I'm already in Trivial Pursuit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what what are people going to offer me? Wow. I'm sorry. I care about kids. That's who I stand up for. And there's nothing. What are you going to do to me? Take away a career? Thank you very much. I make my own. Okay. So now, so when when the Donna Reed show ends after all that success, what, what happens then? Well, that, that was a steady decline uh, to, to my bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the year after the Donna Reed show, I'll, I'll put it in work terms, it's easier to understand. Mm-hmm. I worked 16 weeks. The year after that, I worked eight weeks. The year after that, I worked four weeks. And the year after that, I couldn't get a job. Wow. Wow. Did you, were you able to save money while you were doing? Did you have money, or was that gone too? No, 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 no. I had I had my money, but mm-hmm. you know, if you don't have an income, yeah, slowly but surely, your nest egg dissolves. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So, so that's okay. There yeah. was a big lesson in that too. 
So how old are you when you're when you hit that bottom? Uh, 25-ish or so. It was about just short of 1970, and Mickey Rooney came to my house uh, the year before that, and, and I, I hadn't invited him. Mm-hmm. He showed up at my door, sat me down on my couch, and said, Paul, you got to get out of town, get your education, and don't come back for 25 years because they won't let you work anymore. Wow. And when I asked him why he was telling me that, he pointed that finger at me and said, because it happened to me. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And, what? of course, he was correct. Okay, so now he tells you this, and you're at your bottom. Yes. And so what do you do? A year later, I was out of town and back in Connecticut and doing exactly what he said, trying to reestablish my own credentials in education. I got a book contract out of Simon and & Schuster and... and put my life back together slowly but surely one day at a time and and okay so now are you drinking then are you sober then what's going on there well i didn't really get seriously so sober until years later mm-hmm. uh, and the reason was frankly my kids mm-hmm. uh, the, the gang a uh, minor consideration mm-hmm. uh there were so many things i wanted to do and i knew very clearly um that i couldn't accomplish any of that Unless I was sober, mm-hmm. and I mean cold sober. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sober 15 years, by the way. Hey, good for you. Good for you. <sighs> yeah, good for us. Okay, so, so that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you don't decide to just like change your life, get a, a little education, and start like this other little career. You like publish, <laughs> like you you publish how many books? Eight books in like one year. You're 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 turning well, out. No, it took a few years, but you know, by the end of the by end of the writing career, before I moved back to California, I was up to sixteen books <laughs> and uh, fourteen of them all published by, you know, Random House, Simon and Schuster, wow. Trident, you know, important publishers. I was making a career of it. Wow! It, wow! And and are, do you still write? Oh, I sure surely do. I mean, I know on Facebook. It's it's targeting writing, mm-hmm. targeted writing. I don't know if you see my Facebook pages. Yes, I do. People seem to like my postings. Your postings are fantastic. We were just encouraging everybody to follow yes. you. Brilliant. It, and and it, what you wrote, well, what you wrote after Aaron passed, was just beautiful. Oh, it, it was so. You know, that is such a shock and so painful. She and I were not close. Mm-hmm. I, I try to explain this to everybody, but the gang. Mm-hmm. This gang of 800 or so former kid stars had early on reached out to her, befriended her, and they were close to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the way I was. I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of grandpa Paul these mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. But these people really had had extended their hands, understood her circumstances, mm-hmm. her desire to be private, and even though we all would have loved for her to be here in Southern California with quality medical care, mm-hmm. you know, at a, my, with just a drive of 20 minutes, mm-hmm. but she wanted what she wanted. Mm-hmm. So there you are. By the way, I spoke to Anson Williams earlier today, and he said to, mm-hmm. to send you his best regards. Uh, and of course, mine back to him. I, it is a, here's a guy who is truly faithful to, to his friend. Yes, he he's he's quite he's been quite a friend to me as well. He's been mentoring me. He's a lovely man. Um, yes. 
And he's had his own health issues uh, in, in recent months, which he has just gotten to the other side of. But he also faced the big C and um, had uh, had some rough months here this year, but is now, he sounded fantastic today when I spoke to him. Um, oh, that's good. I, it is, you know, the health issues, uh, truly, at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, the well-being of your family and your health. Mm-hmm. If you, you lose your health or when your friends lose, their 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 good health, I it it changes everything. It truly does. Absolutely. So so tell us about the beginning of a minor consideration and how um, Rusty Hamer and how how that came into how that happened. Well, I I had always stayed friends with my kid actor chums, you know, especially mm-hmm. my contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, along about 1990. Uh, one of my close friends, Rusty Hamer from uh, Danny Thomas show, mm-hmm. suddenly killed himself, mm-hmm. and he was alone, uh, impoverished mm-hmm. in Derrida, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And why this impacted me so much is simple: I didn't stop when I was going through New Orleans to go see him. This is my life friend. Mm-hmm. We race cars together, chase girls together. Mm-hmm. I talk to his brother all the time. Mm-hmm. Why didn't I show up? Well, the answer to that is a minor consideration. Mm-hmm. I set aside the manuscript I was writing called a minor consideration, and instead of just collecting in these stories and, and relating them to other people, I decided to do something. And at that time, this is January 1990, we had uh, Todd Bridges was in jail on attempted murder charges. Mm-hmm. Danny Bonaducci had lost another job. Mm. Dana Plato was naked in Playboy. Mm-hmm. And Drew Barrymore was writing a biography detailing drug and alcohol use at age nine. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. And so how did you ch- how did you start how did you band together with others? Did you do it yourself? What, what, how did you how did you build this? Well, I at first I shared my intentions with my wife, who is a show business nurse, Mm -hmm. and we started making phone calls. The first person I reached out to help was Jay uh, North from Dennis the Menace, who was threatening to kill people and was profoundly unhappy. And phone call by phone call, personal intervention by personal intervention, and by the grace of God, people started to respond positively Mm -hmm. when I asked them to please help. Mm -hmm. Not that they owed these famous youngsters anything, Mm -hmm. but in the spirit of of just love, I don't know what else to call it, Mm -hmm. uh, we gave people something, and it was time for them to return the favor. Mm -hmm. So doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs started to pitch in, and the theatrical unions became interested, and slowly but surely more and more Former kid stars stepped up to the plate and started to help, mm-hmm. especially in group meetings. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, we were a merry band of of sixty, and then a uh, hundred, and then four hundred, and wow. gaining power and influence as we went along. And people came to rely on us uh, to provide the kind of assistance that only other kid actors understand. And so, do you guys reach out to current kid actors? <laughs> Without question. Uh-huh. We have interventions all the time. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah, sadly, I'm sure well, there's a call for you it. You've got to understand that kid actors, by and large, know the work of other kid actors, even ones from generations ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's amusing to me to watch, even like Gary Coleman, uh, during his court case in Santa Monica, and we went to lunch, and he saw a waitress approaching with that, I've got to get an autograph look, and mm-hmm. he got himself all prepared, and she leaned right over him to me and said, oh, Paul Peterson, <laughs> I grew up with you, I loved you. And Gary finally looked at me and went, geez, maybe I ought to watch the Donna Reed show. And I go, yeah, Gary, maybe you better. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So have you had... Kid kid actors have unique circumstances. We understand what it feels like to be called out as as some kind of a a nose-in-the-air thinking you're special when all we're doing is working. Mm. When when people say the meanest things, or, or like so many of my girlfriends... Nobody calls them for a date because they assume they're busy. Right. And a lot of beautiful Hollywood women are sitting home alone on Saturday night. Wow. Wow. We understand Mm -hmm. what it means to become uh, separated from your family, from your blood relations. Mm -hmm. Uh, How they think that you've changed when the truth is they've changed Mm -hmm. because of your notoriety. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What, what did your family change to, when 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 life took a downturn? Did your family change towards you? Had had it had no, it? No, no, no! Thank God, that was the cool part. The family stayed secure, especially my cousins and my sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, my car buddies have always been my car buddies, ups and downs. Mm-hmm. It was the industry that you know had had enough of me. Mm-hmm. It was this thing called work that that disappeared, mm-hmm. and uh, after the starting a career as a writer and being pretty successful at that. When I came back to Hollywood uh, to to be here to help these other kid actors, people got it. It was like, well, of course Paul does that. That's what, he's, that's what his whole life is about. Mm-hmm. And you know something? They're right. So I assume that other than that stop that you didn't make to Rusty Hamer, I'm, I'm feeling like, I hope that you've lived a life without regret, because it seems that you've followed every path to its greatest possible conclusion. Do you? I, I think so. Look, I, I am, I'm feeling very content. Um, I, I've told people I, in my bio, I even say, I, I don't want to go to bed at night, and I can't wait to get up. <laughs> and of all the things I've done in my life, and I've done some special things, mm-hmm. The tombstone is still going to say the founder of a minor consideration. Oh, that's that's quite an accomplishment, Paul. Something to uh, you are justified in your pride in that. That's an amazing, um, amazing feat. Is there anything like still ahead that that you aspire to accomplish? Is there anything else that you that you want to do? Well, yes, I, I want to. A very prominent businessman out of Chicago, Mike Lanigan, uh, uh, told me 10 years ago, you have to prepare your successors, Paul, because that's the job of a CEO. Mm -hmm. And I had been hoping that other former kid stars, younger than I, would would pick up the baton, if you will, Mm -hmm. 
And sure enough, for the last two years, a, a group of about 200 former kid stars, genuine former kid stars, mm-hmm. have in fact picked up picked up the baton, and they're moving forward with it. I would like, before I die, to see the end of the exemption to federal child labor laws that young performers still suffer in, in America, mm-hmm. of all places. Mm-hmm. The idea that kids in show business and sports, and who pick our crops, can be exempt from federal child labor laws, fills me with rage. Uh, okay, I, I, ex- it's absurd. Can you explain that to us a little bit? That makes absolutely no sense. Sure. In 1938, when they passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the law that governs most people who work in this country, mm-hmm. exemptions to the rules were granted to the kids in show business, to the children who deliver newspapers and periodicals. In fact, the provision is called the Newsy Exemption. Mm -hmm. And the kids who work in agriculture. Mm -hmm. There are some other categories as well, about 40 in all. Mm -hmm. And since 1938, there has been no federal standard for these children. Now, it's one thing to think privileged kids in show business have got it bad. What about the 800,000 kids that are picking our food? Oh, my gosh. They are exempt. And this was called the Newsy exemption. And if you live in a good state like California with highly publicized and enforced child labor regulations for show business, you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But not in North Carolina, Mm. not in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, not if you work in, in some of the southern states or even supposedly enlightened Iowa, you could be at risk. Wow. That's why these these reality producers shoot in out-of-the-way locations, huh. Arkansas, Georgia, Pennsylvania, for God's sakes. We had to go to Pennsylvania to get them to, to enforce their own laws. Wow. So how do you get, how does that law, how does that law get federally get changed? How does that happen? Well, I... I, 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 I wish I could tell you it was simple, but there's heavy money mm-hmm. on the other side. They will never say it publicly, mm-hmm. but people are making money off children. Mm-hmm. It's just the way kids have been monetized on the Internet now. Mm-hmm. There are forces, dark forces, which like exploiting children. <laughs> they like it. Huh. And you can, see, look, you can see it all around. The huh. sexualization of young girls, How often the abuse pa- of boys. Paul, how often in, in the kids that you encounter is sexual uh, abuse an issue of what they have experienced in Hollywood? A third of the time, a little bit more for the girls, although the boys are catching up these days. Oh, boy. It's real. Mm-hmm. Look, it's real. The casting couch has been real since the 19-teens. The, the young hopefuls are out there on Santa Monica Boulevard and on Melrose any night of the week. You can go see them, beautiful kids willing to sell their souls. Mm-hmm. What, what I didn't mention earlier is that Louise also has a podcast called Journals Out Loud, which uh, is for tweens and teens, where they talk, mm-hmm. they talk about social issues for kids and uh, answer questions from kids out in the, out in the world. There's an app, and, and there's all kinds of ways for kids to participate to talk about things that their concerns and so louise oh, good on you Weezy. it's yeah. so important kids are being shafted mm-hmm. I, it's just terrible what's happened to kids you know i you heard me say this vicky when i went to school in southern california california schools especially lausd schools were the number one stop in the number one state in the number one nation in the world 
Mm-hmm. Today, California is tied with Mississippi, and America is 28 on the science and technology issues. Mm-hmm. 28. Mm-hmm. Who voted for that? Not a soul I know. Mm-hmm. Well, I tried my best in Washington, but apparently, even though we had plenty of access, uh, we got no help from the Clintons, either Bush mm-hmm. or Obama, mm-hmm. because they listened to other voices. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that uh, the generation up and coming is able to uh, impart some change in that regard. Um, that's those are tragic. Me too. I, I, I we all hope for it. Honest to God, it's like a, it's like our closing prayer. You know, when we meet, <laughs> so, let's not forget Washington D.C. <laughs> absolutely. And so, what are those meetings like? I, w- I want to be a fly. I want to. What's first of all? It's a bunch of like people that I like. You're all like our our here our childhood heroes. Uh, what's it like well, when you all get exactly together? True. Well, usually these are targeted discussions, and these are pretty competent people. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have a legislation to work on, there's that. Mm-hmm. If there's a party to plan, if someone needs help, if there's legislation in the state, we need to. We need to go after it. Like, for example, Weezy, I'm sure you talked about this. The, uh, the state of California tried to end the funding for the Internet Crimes Against Children Department. They wanted to take their money away. Mm-hmm. And we all know how safe the Internet is mm-hmm. for kids. It's, it's, a huge, it's a huge concern. Yes, indeed. So uh, those are, that's what the meetings are like. But the other part is we have a lot of fun together because we don't have to do much explaining. Mm-hmm. You know, We've all got stage parents or had them. We've all been stopped for autographs. A lot of us have had very public uh, meltdowns. So it's, they're a good group. Wow. I, 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 I'm, I'm blessed to um, be very old friends with Mason Reese and... Uh, it seems to me that Mason's uh, one of the few. Uh, he has a very loving relationship with his mother, and I, I guess that's yes. a good part of the reason why he's been able to move through his life. And um, hopefully, well, of course it is. But understand, if we lived in in Mumbai, if we lived in South Africa, mm-hmm. if you have a good set of parents, you'll come out all right. Yeah, yeah. you will. Yeah. Because parents can protect you from 50% of the bad crap. Mm. But boy, if they are missing some key emotional component, uh, you can really be let down. Do your children appreciate the dad that you are, do you think? I, you know, my children are a complete mystery to me. I love <laughs> them like crazy, uh, but they are doing adult things that I never would have suspected. <laughs> I mean, my oldest boy is a neurologist, for God's sake. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> wow. Uh, Ethan has his own casting company. Uh, mm-hmm. Shannon is pursuing advanced degrees. I'm sorry. I didn't have anything to do with that. Oh, it's come very on. special. You had, on. Pl- you had plenty to do with that. Just loving them the way yeah. you do makes that all possible. That's a beautiful thing, Paul. That's lovely to hear. Okay, so I have one last question for you, which is kind of sure. out of the... It's just how we end each show. It's, I, you know... The, Speaking to you and and um, hearing your your journey, I hope is I know for me it's inspiring, and you've offered a lot of suggestions of of for me what's going to be helpful for me to take forward in my life. So to humanize you a little bit, because you're kind of a big fat hero, but you're not fat. Um, So I ask at the end of every show, do you have any guilty pleasures? Is there anything that you adore that you can't believe that you even 
Like anything. <laughs> is there anything like you have a little bit of guilt about? That, that, that's funny. Well, I, I read too many books, and, and uh, I confess that my favorite books are hard science fiction. Wow. That is my favorite, and I can get lost in it very easily. You know, that's a pretty, um, good, gui- that's a pretty good guilty pleasure to have, I think. I think so, too. The other thing that I, I guess surprises people is Ron and I love to listen to audiobooks, mm-hmm. and we take long car trips, you know, cross-country mm-hmm. trips, mm-hmm. And, and I can have as much fun in a car, and the time can disappear listening to Janet Ivanovich as, as anybody. Wow, I, that's that's a wonderful guilty pleasure. Nothing to feel guilty about at all. I think that's pretty fantastic. I think you're extremely fantastic, Paul. I want to thank you so so much for for this and for everything. You're always so gracious and lovely and willing and easy and um, you just you exude positivity and warmth and love. You're an extraordinary man. And I'm wow, really, thank you, Vicky. That, that makes me feel good. Truly, it does. I, I'm really, really grateful. I do thank you so much, and, and I adore you, and I, and I applaud you, and I thank you for this, this work that you're doing. Um, I'm, the world owes you a great debt of gratitude. Thank you, Vicky. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. Thanks for visiting us. So easy. Yes. Takeaways with Paul. I There are so many. So many. There are so many. First one is be excellent at whatever you do. I love that. I love the fact that he had just made the decision. And what I also love is that if you're not excellent at something, move on. Instead of, you know, like, because I spend, I waste a lot of time trying to be, ex- trying to get better at things that I'm not good at. Math wasn't one of them. But there are other things that I do spend too much time um, and I don't have a talent for it. And it's about moving on. Or if you do it, just do it for the fun of doing it. If, if you're not excellent, just sort of accept that. But the things that you know you're good at and you know you could do better, do better. Do better. I mean, I, I don't know that I... I, I know that I don't have Paul's discipline and determination because look what he did, but I'm, you know, well, the stars were aligned, but also what he has accomplished, what he accomplished so young is incredible. But I love that he was, you know, there, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase that. There's a part of me that's a little sad that he had to be the best at everything because what drove him to do that, that, that does, that, that, that wanting to be loved by his mother and accepted by his mother, trying to get her appreciation of everything, that makes me sad and I can relate to it mm-hmm. um, because nothing I've ever, you know, I, I understand about nothing ever being good enough. Right. And what I saw is, or what I felt was we had this beautiful, magical, brilliant child mm-hmm. and that was exploited. Mm-hmm. And then he reclaimed himself, he repurposed it all, even the pain. And he applies it back into the world, and that's just beautiful. The, what he is doing for for forget just child actors, just the whole consciousness of giving back, of being of service, of being devoted to it for forty years. It's been his life's work, um, and as you said, the amount of lives that have been saved, changed as Un- a result. Some told, some untold. I'm sure there are many untold, especially since he's speaking to 
child actors today and their families and cautioning them and what that's you know, going to giving pay them forward. the tools. Right. Yeah, he's a pretty extraordinary man. So so for me, be the best be the best I can be at everything I put my mind to. Let go of the things that I can't do unless I want to do them for fun. Is you pointed out, Wheezy, which I think is a good point. And also this, this, this dedication to being of service and to taking whatever life lessons we have and to pay them forward and do all that uh, I possibly can to make the world a better place. I, I, that's a pretty beautiful thing. It is, and you already do that. Oh, Wheezy, <laughs> as do you, my friend. Well, anyway, this has been, I say this every week. I mean this, I mean it again. This I is, really love Paul Peterson. I really love Paul what Peterson. What a fine man. I mean, I had the biggest girl crush on Paul. I mean, <laughs> this little, little girl crush on him when I was a little, little girl. But now I have a big girl love, a, a woman's love yes. for a wonderful man who is deserving of love and affection. So anyway, thank you so much, Wheezy, for another great show. Thank you out there for listening. Remember, we're here every Tuesday with a new show, but we are a radio-free podcast here whenever you are. So mind those archives, and we'll see you next week. The Road Taken is a radio-free podcast here whenever you are. A new show every Tuesday. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on the corner of Hollywood and Vine where I'll be using a bullhorn. Well, you can also get links to all this and more at VickiAbelson.com. That's V-I-C-K-I-A-B-E-L-S-O-N. Please follow, subscribe, review, lather, rinse, repeat. Till next Tuesday. And mine and binge our archive while you're at it. It's rich with information, inspiration, and fun, damn it. Thanks for listening. And if you like to watch, keep your eyes peeled for our next Facebook Live. <laughs> <laughs>